I'm very, very excited about this uh, this afternoon, starting with this presentation that is going to go until 2 o'clock. Um, you guys are getting the very first preview of some things that we're working with at DLDS cooking up. Um, in fact, um, we're hoping that on the next library administrator agenda that we're able to get some people coming out talking about the sharing economy and that we're able to have a fall event that is all uh, focused on that. So you're going to get a little uh, preview of that today and really have an opportunity to learn a lot. Um, I ask you if you're not here, as a, if you're not an administrator, can you please bring this back to your administrators, what you got about this, because it's all new. So I'd like to start out by introducing um, John Shea, who is with Station North Tools Library, which is here in Baltimore. And I want to tell you a little bit about John. Um, he has a background as a mixed media sculptor with an MFA from uh, RIT's American School for Crafts and a technician for higher education art departments. And um, that's really inspired his knowledge to get going with um, looking at hand skills and looking at you know needing to people needing tools. And he's part of this whole Baltimore renaissance. And I don't know if everybody in the room, since you're from different parts of the state, know about. So um, he's really like one of the hip, cool people in Baltimore, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really great that, that he's here. Um, and along with him is Mary Murphy, who um, is from, uh, from the Center for a New American Dream. And she's going to be talking about today about um, the sharing economy. And I don't know if any of you have heard things about like seed libraries. Anybody hear about that? The New American Dream has already been giving webinars on, on topics, and lots of libraries across the country have been... Um, been joining. What you need to know about Mary is that she actually is a former high school history teacher, so I think she can really relate to us. Um, and um, she's actually in Silver Spring area, and she's a volunteer because she actually has another whole other job. So she's a volunteer for the Center for a New American Dream, which is all about like getting people empowered to work in their communities. It's like where we need to be. So I'm really excited about introducing them. Can we give them applause? They're here on their own time for us. And we'll start out with John. Hello, everybody. So now, like, I'm a, I'm, I've been a librarian for five, five weeks now. With the with the with the with the Station North Tool Library, and this project, and I'll say like just before I start, this this project we have we started really researching it and starting a, a year ago, and all of this has happened in the last year, and um, I think Baltimore right now is like hungry for it, and I'm sure there's a lot of other areas too that this thing the thing this and things like this can just like take off because people are starting to recognize it pretty uh pretty regularly now. So we're the st I'm part of the Station North Tool Library, and um, I can, we'll, start, we'll start with that. So, um, and this is like the craziest fact you'll ever hear, and it kind of like makes a lot of sense with what we do. So 50% um, of households own a power drill. The power drill for this is just like an example. This, is like, this covers a lot more tools than just, a, just power drills. Um, <laughs> and so this is, this is true. It, it really is true. 
So if, if you think about like how many tools there are that just aren't being used, because it's so easy for us to buy things now that um, we can just go in. We need it, we buy it, and then it just collects dust. So what we want to do is we want to take all of those tools that are collecting dust and we will put them in the hands of people that are going to use it. But um, so what happens to tools when they're not being used? Wouldn't it be nice if we could like fabricate some story of them like getting into trouble and doing things when they're not when they're just like not doing anything? But um, no, they just sit. They don't. They don't. They don't do anything. So um, yeah, this happens to most tools. Um, so if if they if we could get our hands on it. The, the tools that we have right now, we've already started to get things that people will bring into us, and they'll say, you know, like we we've got this, we needed it for one project, we we don't need it anymore. Can you hold it, and then when we need it, we'll have access to it again. Um, and everybody's doing it so they can serve space. This is like a selling point for a lot of stuff for people that come in that use that use tools, and then they have like a significant other that doesn't use tools and likes space more than they like to use their tools every once in a while. Um, so in researching to start this tool library, um, when we decided that we were definitely going to do it, uh, we, we went out across the country. We found this massive network of tool lending libraries across the United States. So uh, me and my partner, Piper, she was going to be here today for this, but she had to shoot a wedding. She's a photographer. But um, we went out and we went to go to different libraries all over the place to see what was working where and this network is growing it's growing really fast too uh, it's really taken off um, so what we believe to be important is access to tools we think it's just it, it's so easy for it to happen and, it, and everybody like really wants it we've been met um, so as soon as we opened our doors we had people kind of like coming in that with no experience with tools and they're like using it as an excuse to like get moving on projects uh, I have three really good stories that I'll tell you guys in a second. Um, so the, what you could do with access to our library is it covers like a huge ground. We, we have tools that you know, um, from landscaping, home improvement. We're trying to expand to like sewing machines and sergers and stuff like that. So we can have not just tools for you know building and construction, rehabbing and all that stuff, but uh, we want to kind of exp expand uh, tools that anybody can be used for anything. So if we look again at the map, there's um, one really cool specific area that we took a lot of information from, and that was in Portland. Um, we went into one library in Portland, and um, and I went in. I was like, Hey, how's it going? I'm starting a tool library in Baltimore. This is, you know, uh, we want to like get information. The girl that was sitting there, she was checking all of these people in and out as we were there. She checked in 35 people in 40 minutes, like check tools in and out. She, as soon as we walked in, I had my little like, hey, I need help, you know, and she pulled out a chair. I have no idea where she got it from. She set it next to her, and she's like, you can sit there and ask questions while I work. Don't get in my way. It's like, all right, cool. And... Um, but we got a lot of information from her, and she was a powerhouse, and she really was doing a good thing. She was the the one volunteer that they had. The out of all of the libraries we went to, there was like very different models everywhere. We and we took from we took the best from all of them for what we're doing here in Baltimore. But the Berkeley Tool Library system basically the, the started off with the North Portland Tool Library, and um, and they served the neighborhood of North Portland, and that was it. When anybody would come in from outside of that, they would say, well, you don't live in this neighborhood. You can't check our tools out. But here's all the information that you need to start 
your own library. So uh, now there's actually more than this. There's five or six now that that's not on, you know there's two that are not on this on this map. But the way that they did it, I think, is like really important, and we're trying to do it in Baltimore. We're trying to build a network between uh, different people who share tools and lend tools um, because we do think, I mean, just the impact that we're having on our neighborhood alone is really important and we're not geographically like threatened for any reason. What we're doing we think is, is, is it's, it's really needed and it's really necessary. Um, so this talk is like one of the first talks I've given since we've opened. So instead, of, before I would always say, um, we plan on doing this. We would like to do this. But now we are. We are, we are doing it. It is, it is working. Um, we are, I'll, I'll give you the statistics of what we have now. But so now instead of like telling you what we plan on doing, I have three kind of like really cool stories of different people that we've come in contact with. And um, one is a, a, a vet from Afghanistan. He's been home for a year. Um, he's like grew, grown up in construction his whole life, and now he's like starting a construction business. Um, he is our number one tool checker outer, and he is ahead of everyone else by far, even me. Like I still check out tools and wire, even though I like sitting there and like hang out all the time and have access to everything. I still do it officially, but um, so it, it's it's a really good service to him, and we kind of want to use that as a, a that's one thing that we really want to do. We want to kind of um, help start jobs, and it's really it's not very hard for us to do. You know, like simple tools for construction that we have in our library, everybody can use it. But if it's eight tools a week that we lend out to each person, like somebody can start a business with that. We kind of hope that that's what the tool library will do. It helps start small um, small businesses. Uh, one other person is kind of uh, interesting is where one of our major tool donations um, came in from this woman who her, her father recently passed away. He was a hobby cabinet maker. So like just like a home craftsman, but she came into all of these tools and she had no idea what to do with any of this stuff. So she found she heard about us and she contacted me and she's like, I don't know if you'll want any of this stuff. Can you come and see if you can take it off my hands? It's a burden. So I went over and I was like, yeah, we we'll take all of it. And I loaded my truck up. I had like the entire truck full. Um, and now all of those tools have numbers on them. They're in our inventory and they're going back out in the public. So uh, that woman who donated those tools wants to start to lecture for us because it was such it had such an impact on her, like having to get rid of her father's estate, that she wants to help like spread awareness of what we're doing, and she wants she's going to start coming into the library and volunteering for us to see those tools get used. It's and it's like kind of like a like a very heart wrenching thing, you know everything that she was going through. But the service that we provide her, just because of wanting to provide access to tools, is like pretty groundbreaking. I thought that was really neat. Um, the, the other story that I think is really um, kind of impressive, and I'm so happy that we've had these experiences up to this point, so I can tell you about them. Um, this, uh, this girl from uh, India, she had never used a power tool her entire life. She came in a week ago, and she, uh, she came in and used her first power tool. We showed her how to use a drill. And um, she's taking all of these uh, shutters that she pulled out of a dumpster, and she's making a table out of them. But she's using tool library tools. And uh, her parents are coming to visit her in like a couple weeks from India. And she said, 
there, she, um, she said, there's so many people, so many people, this is exactly what she said, there's so many people looking for jobs that need jobs that you don't do anything yourself. If you need somebody to do it, there's somebody there. Or if you need something done, there's somebody there that does it for a living. So you don't touch tools, you know, for her as a woman. And she said, when her parents come to visit her in two weeks, she's going to have this really cool table that she made out of shutters that she made herself. And she said her parents are just going to, like, die when they see it. So that's that's the good that's the really good news. But um, we got really good funding for our first year when I said Baltimore kind of wanted it to happen. Um, we basically stumbled into a network of everything we needed. Uh, everything came like basically was handed to us. And I know a lot of nonprofit organizations they like work very 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 hard for their funding, for their support, um, and I'm I'm grateful for it. But we 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 did we did within the first year we had our entire first year's operating budget covered. We had fiscal sponsorship from an organization. I'll talk a little bit more about it in a second. Um, but we we had a, we got a space and uh, and a big artist community. So we basically got welcomed in. But one thing that we're not using our grant funding for is we're not buying new tools. We're not looking for sponsorship from tool manufacturers. We are, the money that we got, we're putting back into the community by purchasing tools off of Craigslist and, um, and through people in the area. We don't want a factory to bump up production to fill our shelves, even though we, can, we, could, we could afford it. There's enough tools that we've just gotten so far just from contact, like coming in contact with the public that we know there's a ton more. And it's just a matter of like making good connections and building community to kind of like help the, help, help the library grow. So we're not going to the nearest box store to fill up on tools. And our community, we're buying all the stuff from our community. So if we look now at this map again that you saw a second ago, there's something different about it. So now, um, if you look at Maryland, there's a tag on it. And if you look at Baltimore, that's us. So we are officially now recognized as one of the tool libraries in the United States. We joined the, the ranks, and, um, and it's all coming together. So we're open. I think we have some of the coolest signs that there is in Baltimore. <laughs> I, the, one, of the, one of the good things about being a part of uh, the community that I was already part of before is we know like some of the best, best craftsmen in the city. And uh, me and a friend of mine made, uh, made, the, made the sign for the tool library. So. We think it's pretty cool. Um, this is kind of just like a shot of some of the tools that we have and the dog that watches them. His name is, his name is uh, Super Dave. So in five weeks, uh, we have 85 members. We have over 400 tools. If you go to our, our website, the, um, we're just under 300 on the website, but it's because everything gets photographed and numbered. And screwdrivers and sockets are like kind of hard to do that with right now. Um, we have, we're building a volunteer network. We have so many people that just want to come in and work for us, but one of the coolest things is we have a lot of people that just have no experience with tools, and they're using it as an excuse to learn how to, how to, how to use stuff. So, and we're starting to plan our workshops. Right now, the, the tool library is not a money-making venture. Um, it, the access to the tool library is a dollar to a hundred dollars. We ask every person when they come in to be a member, we ask them for a dollar for every thousand dollars a year that they make. 
the, the neighborhood that we're in, we've had a lot of people come in at a very low dollar mark, and that's cool because that's what that's the that's the lost leader. The tool library is our lost leader. We will um, start to teach classes and workshops in fabrication and building techniques. So and um, that will be where we uh, become self-sustaining. The the tool library, however, will teach starting in two weeks. We're going to start teaching. Um, uh, just workshops on the tools that we lend out because we lend out uh, finger takers and fire starters. So we need to know that those tools are going out into capable hands. Um, so that's part, I'll talk a little bit about partnerships we made starting the tool library. The Fusion Partnerships is the phys our fiscal sponsor. They're basically, they are our nonprofit status. They are a massive network uh, they're massive. I say they're a massive network, but they're three people in an office, and they are a powerhouse. But they represent and they physically sponsor uh, 60 different projects in Baltimore City, and they everything is social justice. And um, and like I said, they are a, they are a powerhouse, and they work like crazy. But when we made a partnership with them, we joined a family, and we joined a family of people who are working to provide a better quality of life. Um, and Area 405 is where we have where we're housed. It's a big artist complex. I have a studio there also, but that's how I found out about this really neat uh, storefront property that they had that needed to be renovated. That was included in our first year. We renovated the space that we're in. We're in a it's a hundred year old um, brewery that was in Baltimore that is that that is now all artist artist space. Um, and then. Uh, these are who like really helped us get started. Share Starter. I know there was a lot of librarians that were kind of like their ears perked up when we talked about the 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 tool lending libraries in California that were actually a part of the library systems. So you would go like you would see people coming in and out of the front door of the library with books, and then the back door people would be going in and out with rakes and shovels and drills and hammers and everything. And there are actually libraries that are uh, tool libraries that are supported by the library system. So they've uh, figured out the the liability with lending out spinning blades and things like that. But um, it's very it's a very healthy uh, healthy environment that they build. You can we walk, I walked into one of them in uh, in Oakland, California, and um, as I was in there, this guy walked in, checked out a weed whacker. I'm like having conversation with the with the tool librarians and then 10 minutes later he comes right back in and he had just like gone and used the tool and was like bringing it back. Um, but you could tell that the, the, that community like took care of their tool library. Our community so far, we uh, when we started lending tools, it's a week turnaround. So we lent out our first weeks worth of tools and we're like this is Baltimore come on you know and um, and everything came back everything came back and it came back in awesome condition <clears throat> and it came back with people with smiling and ha I'm gonna drink some water before I die um, that's gone um, that's okay I'll be right I'm almost done um, so but people were happy they were enjoying themselves and there were new projects starting in our in our neighborhood so share starter is uh, an organization, and they provided basically like how to start a tool library packet. All of the inf if you follow it step by step, within a year, you can have yourself a tool library. Um, and the um, the Center for the New American Dream, which is, uh, Mary's a representative from there, um, we they they provide webinars, and they had a tool library webinar, 
and they shot the tool library webinar at the at the Oakland tool library the day before I got there on my motorcycle to go talk to them about their tool library they're like hey we just got this thing we just recorded this uh, conversation and it'll be available for you to look at and I was like cool so then that's how I met these guys it was later I, I got home and I found it and watched it and it was incredibly helpful um, so in Baltimore there's two partnerships that we've made we made a partnership with the B note it's a Baltimore currency there's 200 businesses that accept it it's a basically dollar to a dollar exchange rate um, except it's 10% uh, you, if you for uh, 10, Amer 10 US dollars, you get 11 B notes. When you, if you get stuck with a bunch of B notes at the end of it and you don't want them anymore, you can exchange it back for the reverse rate. But there's 200 businesses in Baltimore that accept them. So it's basically just, it, it's, it's strengthening local traffic of, uh, you know, of, of, of money. So, oh, wrong direction. And then we've also built a partnership with Let's Be More, the, the Baltimore Time Bank. Um, and this is something that can actually like be go like get incorporated into the library system also. But this is basically a network um, of people exchanging a, do, uh, a an hour for an hour of labor. So if you have something that you're good at, you can post it on the on the on the site. If somebody sees that and they need that assistance, you can do the work for them and you get some of their some of their hours. And then you can use your hours to purchase work from somebody else. It's really, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very neat organization. So the tool library, I figured, but it's a simple, it's a, it's a simple exchange for us. We, you know, we have tools. People will come in to do work. They'll have access to tools to do those jobs for other people. So that's us. That's the tool library. That's our website. If you check it, you can see what tools we have online so far. Cool. I think Mary will. Well, thank you for inviting me today. As John said, and you've heard, I'm here with the Center for a New American Dream, which is a national nonprofit. It actually started in Tacoma Park in the 1990s, and it's now a national nonprofit. And the basic mission is to encourage people to shift and reduce their consumption habits as a way to improve their quality of life, um, to protect the planet, and to build community. And we do that, and we encourage it by offering fun tools, practical tips, manageable steps people can take in their everyday lives so that they can start doing more what matters to them. So I first learned about the Center for a New American Dream back in the 1990s when I was a stay-at-home mother raising three children. And it was at that time that I got a real clear sense of the power of advertising and commercialism on our lives. Um, my children were always wanting things. They were always nagging to go get fast food or to get the latest fashion Barbie or the hottest new computer game or as they got older, to get a cell phone, and then an iPhone, and an iPod, and an i all those i things. And, um, and I found that I was always wanting things as well. New kitchen gadgets to improve my cooking, if that could happen. Um, <laughs> different equipment that would somehow make raising children easier. Um, and before I knew it, there was just so much stuff coming into our house from shopping trips, from birthday goodie bags, little junky stuff, um, from holiday presents, 
And before I knew it, the container store really was my new best friend. And I was spending more money to buy boxes and baskets and buckets and bins to literally contain our stuff. So um, does this look familiar to any of you? Tons of junk. It almost just makes me nervous to look at it. Boxes of toys and kitchen appliances and clothes and stuff everywhere. And we are literally buried in our stuff. Between 1985 and 2008, um, the self-storage industry grew three times faster than the American population itself. To house our stuff, Americans spend over $22 billion a year, and we fill up about 86 square miles of self-storage space. That's almost 20 square miles bigger than the city of Washington, D.C. itself. And we barely use the stuff that we have. So I'm going to have a similar thing coming up. But the average American uses his or her car for about 8% of the time. That's about two hours a day. The average drill, you have 6 to 20, but we've got 6 to 13 minutes for a, um, the average power drill. And in our house, uh, we have a power drill, and it takes us five minutes of its 6 to 13-minute lifetime for us to find the drill bits. And that's pretty much it right there. The average wedding dress today costs $1,100, and it is worn once. So I think about my life. I wore my wedding dress for five hours. So that's over $200 an hour today in today's standards. The cost of consuming more and more and more is high. Let's see if I can get here. You know, spending way beyond our means has put many of us deep into debt. We're depleting our natural resources as we're producing new goods. We're overwhelmed with waste from production of new goods and from a throwaway mentality. You know, our human actions have led to climate change. We're overworked and we're stressed out just to afford our hyperconsumption habits. So I ask if there's any other way. And the Center for a New American Dream envisions a society that seeks more of what matters and less of what doesn't. And it's that mission that drew me to the organization back when I was raising my children and really overwhelmed with our stuff. So you've heard about the sharing economy. I, one, of, one of the librarians came down to the table after lunch, and, and I don't, I'm sorry, I don't know which one of it was. I said, have you heard of the sharing economy? And she said, yes, I'm a librarian. And I went, oh my god, that's right. That's, Yes, so I'm not going to ask. You know about the sharing economy because you do it all the time, right? Um, but so I want to tell you a little bit maybe about the bigger picture sharing economy today and how it connects to the mission, this new dream mission that I've been talking about. This is the uh, March, um, March 9th edition of The Economist, and they had three articles about the new dream, about the sharing economy. I wish the new dream, three articles, but three articles about the sharing economy. So it's a great resource to check out. So um, just in terms of definition, the sharing economy is a marketplace for sharing goods and ideas and services with other people driven by technology and social networks. 
My main um, source for this presentation is this book, What's Mine is Yours, by Rachel Botsman and Rue Rogers, published in 2010. I don't know the ISB number, ISBN number, which I should have known for this audience. Um, but anyway, uh, the type of sharing that they're talking about in, in their book is, is not new. We've been renting tuxedos for weddings. We've been um, sharing washers and dryers at laundromats. We've been leasing cars. We've been checking books out of libraries for years and years and years. But with um, technology and social networks today, we have unprecedented opportunities to share more and a variety of products, um, person to person and close to where we live. The big buzzwords for the sharing economy includes collaborative consumption, peer-to-peer -peer economy, access economy, and John used that in his um, presentation. Um, Botsman, uh, there, actually there are thousands of companies already in existence that promote the sharing economy, and they just are, have the most creative names, Airbnb, couch surfing, crash patter, um, park at my house, um, catch a lift, yours to share, it just goes on and on and on. They're all very fun. The main principle of the sharing economy is access to goods is greater than ownership. Um, and that's really, that's the bottom line for the sharing economy. They believe that it's important to be able to access goods um, without having the burden of ownership. And by following this, you're, um, you're, you're freed of clutter, uh, it, it saves money in your pocketbook, and it's, it's good for the, for the planet. It's good, uh, you know, we create a, a smaller carbon footprint. So it's very important and also promotes social justice, act, you know, more equitable access to resources as well. So lots of things get thrown in there. But if you read the, the book by um, Botsman and Rogers, they've said that when they talk to people about the sharing economy, they find that um, you know, sustainability and um, saving and, and, well, really sustainability in the environment is not top on their list of why they want to share. There's lots of other reasons, but this is a, a great um, byproduct of sharing. Um, as uh, Rachel Botsman points out, with collaborative consumption, it's, it's actually in the user's self-interest, but sustainability and community are an inherent and an inseparable part to collaborative consumption. So many, many bef benefits come out of this uh, sharing economy. Botsman and Rogers organized thousands of different examples of collaborative consumption into three main systems, product service systems, redistribution markets, and collaborative lifestyles. With product service systems, basically, you can access a product, but you don't have to own it. Um, and there's lots and lots of examples. Zipcar, of course, is probably the most familiar. So you can share cars, you can um, share car rides, you can share bicycles, you can share clothes, you can share books, um, all sorts of share DVDs. Again, with um, product service systems, uh, it help, the benefits is you're not producing so many new goods, so you're, you're really limiting new production. You're getting more use out of the products, the old things that you have, and you're limiting waste. So very important. 
Redistribution markets basically allow um, consumers to, to swap or exchange new or used goods, uh, sometimes for free, sometimes for a price, or even similar value for similar value. And again, the items are whatever you can think of, books, um, DVDs, baby clothes. Think of the things that you know you move quickly out of. You don't have them for very long. They don't have a lot of wear, and you can move them out. So again, redistribution markets keep things cycling. All right, very important. Redistribution markets can be considered the fifth R in sustainable consumption. Recycle, now I have to remember them. Recycle, reuse, repair, reduce, thank you, and then redistribute. So, um, so this is the fifth R. Um, and, and with the internet and social networks, it just makes it so easy, practical, convenient, and very worthwhile. With collaborative consumption, um, people make choices to share skill, time, workspaces, um, just like John said, time banking. So you can share on a local level where you might share your workspaces. Uh, you might share uh, parts if you have a backyard that you sure would like some, some vegetables grown there. You might share plots of your backyard with someone. So you have some collaborative gardening. Um, you could share your driveway. I have a driveway that's pretty empty all day long. I could share it. I live near the metro. Somebody could park there. I could give it to them for free, or I could charge a little nominal fee, whatever you're out to do. Um, but uh, collaborative lifestyles definitely bring people together. Um, my, my colleague and I were at a, a, we were doing a table a couple weeks ago in Silver Spring, and uh, a woman came up to our table, and she, turns out she lived in my neighborhood. She had a beautiful little girl who was getting ready to celebrate her first birthday, and she said, you know, we, I just would love to have a birthday party in my backyard, but I live in a townhouse. And I said, well, I have a backyard. I don't have any little children anymore. Why don't you come and have your birthday party in my backyard? So whether that will happen or not, but she came to my house. They came and hung out. So I met a neighbor that I never met before, and I'm just waiting um, to see if she's going to use it. She said, my mom and dad think it's a little weird that we're going to have the birthday party at a woman I just met. And I said, yeah, that's weird, isn't it? But it's pretty fun, too. So lots of opportunities for collaborative lifestyles. What drives the sharing economy? Well, as I said, technology, social networks, basically allow us to connect with people like we've never been able to do before. Um, environmental concerns. Sharing uses fewer natural resources. It limits waste. And it really enables us to reduce our carbon footprint and help in the fight against climate change. Sharing um, helps to build community. Uh, sharing requires trust, um, and, and today, building one's trust reputation is the way to gain access to goods and services, kind of like in the 20th century, how we worked so hard to build our credit rating to purchase goods and services. So definitely requires, but it builds trust as well, and it builds community within your own neighborhoods and across the globe. 
Sharing um, saves you money. You can earn money by sharing, and it can help you to live more simply. And this is just what many of us need to do today as we're working hard to move ourselves out of the global recession. A lot people like to share. Okay, it's one of the first things that we learn to do when we're little kids. And if you read that book by Robert Fulgham about what you learned in kindergarten, sharing everything, share everything is number one on his list of what we learn as little kids and need to do throughout our lives. Sharing is uh, fun to do, and it's good for you, and it's good for the planet. So the Center for a New American Dream naturally supports the sharing economy um, by offering tools and webinars and kits all available through our website that um, enable you to be a collaborative consumer. Um, we offer, this is our guide to sharing, which is an online tool. You can download everything. We came out with it last year. And uh, basically, it offers step-by-step -step guides on how to start a number of different sharing ventures so that you can start sharing right away. One example is hosting a, a community clothing swap. Um, so basically, gathering, maybe just gathering your friends or doing it for your whole community um, to uh, put out clothes that you're not wearing anymore as a way to keep them recycling. But it's definitely more than a recycling event. It's an opportunity to connect with your community, to meet new people. And you can actually carry the basic clothing swap to a DIY level. And there's a website out there called Swaparama Rama where you go, it's a basic clothing swap, but then they have sewing stations available, and you can learn how to make alterations to the free finds that you're coming away with, and um, you can make them fit you better, or you can transform them, but all those things that you got for free, and then you can make changes to them. So you're learning how to use a sewing machine, and you're coming away with um, free finds, so it's very exciting. I had my first clothing swap about a month ago, um, I live in a suburb of Washington, D.C., so I, and I had um, about a dozen middle-aged women over who were like, what is, what are we doing? And I said, here, everybody walked in. I said, have a glass of wine. This will get you started. And they had all dropped their clothes off and whatever, and I had everything all arranged like a little store. We had something to eat, so it was a great opportunity to build community. Everybody was having fun. And then someone said, when can we shop? And I said, well, we can start now. And they said, well, how do we do it? How do we pay? What do we do? And I said, just go and find something that fits you. And it was such an exciting experience for so many people. And what if somebody wants what I want? Well, you're going to have to work that out yourself, I said. But everybody went away with something. One woman came in, um, her mother, her mother's best friend had just passed away, and she was a size 7 shoe. And one of my friends came in with a perfect fit, and she left with about seven new pairs of shoes. And, and everybody said, when's, gonna be, when's the next swap? And I said, well, we did a pretty good job, but we're not very good at it yet. But if we have one in the fall and winter, everybody starts saving now. And we'll get to be really good swappers if we do it on a regular basis. But I can see taking it out to the community, it was just was a wonderful community building event, and we all got something new for our summer wardrobes. So 
Uh, the guide to sharing offers step-by-step um, instructions on how to start a time bank, how to start a tool library, and it's these resources that John and Piper use from our website. We offer lots of webinars, how to start a seed library, how to start a solar co-op, a time bank, a tool library. Our newest webinar um, will be available on June 5th. It's how to start a babysitting co-op. And if you can't watch it that day, then it will be uploaded onto the website so you can access it. The sharing economy and the Center for a New American Dream move us away from the more, more, more mentality and closer to more of what matters in life. More time to play at the park, more time to volunteer at school, more time to go camping, more time to go dancing, more time to plant a garden, more time just to hang out with your friends. The Center for a New American Dream offers practical tools, fun kits, lots of resources for you to consume wisely, live consciously, and connect with community so that you can start to spend time doing more of what matters to you. You can check us out at uh, www.newdream.org, and we've also got a meetup page that you can check out um, to find out uh, what's going on in Maryland. And if you want to start your own New Dream team, you can go there and click on it and start a team and start doing some sharing ventures among your, within your own community. So thank you. Thanks very much, Mary. That was great. Um, we have our keynote is about to to get here, but um, can we just take a couple of minutes? I just want to check in with you. What questions do you have for for John and Mary? If you have any at this point, this kind of might be new information or might not be. Okay. Um, is there like a like a So the yeah. There was a, our tool lending software um, came from a tool library in Seattle. They um, and they built it and they give it to tool libraries for free, and they sell it to tool rental companies. So and that software it's a it's pretty amazing. Um, if you go onto our website, you can check our inventory and see what we have, see what's checked out, see what's available. There's photographs of everything. That um, when somebody comes in, they become a member. Um, it basically emails them and says, you're now a member, you have one year, tell them what's up. And it, um, it also sends them a receipt when they check tools out. It sends them a message when their tool is late. It sends us a message when their tool is late. And it, um, and it lets us know what's overdue. How, when it's due back, who has what. Um, it's very, very, very smart software. But it was, made, it was, it was one, one more thing that was just given to us when we said we wanted to start a library. Yeah, I'm going to first. Okay. Um, in terms of if you have the members who come in to, um, anybody can be a member. They come in and they, you know, okay, I'm going to pay my $1 per whatever I Yes, we have very, we, so, and one of the best things that we stole on our trip 
was we took everybody's forms and we and we took the best the, the best the best information on all of them. So when the, we're we're protected with an identification form. Basically, that we have somebody. Our insurance covers what happens in the space, and when the tools leave, they are the sole responsibility of the of the person who's checked them out. And they and that's on that form. Yes. So they do aware of that. And, and also, and, and to support those forms, we teach classes. So if, if somebody isn't comfortable using those tools, they can become comfortable using them. Um, and if they're not comfortable using those tools, they're not supposed to try to practice. And that's one of the questions. Two questions. First, what do you do when they are present? Uh, we send them an email and say, please, can you return this to them? Um, if, they, if they don't come back, we're very we're willing to accept that they, some tools will not come back. But in most uh, situations, the, the, the community protects the tool library. And, and, when, and it's such a good service that the majority of the time, when tool libraries have had a problem, or a tool has been broken, or something, usually a new tool comes back. They say, sorry, I broke the other one. Here's a new one. Um, the community really does take care of the tool library. Vigilante justice. <laughs> so the, one, of the, one of the libraries in Portland, they have a police officer as one of their one of their members, and, they, and he goes out without uniform. He goes to the house and he says, you know, like, uh, and they usually like look over the fence and see if the tools in the backyard, and he'll say, you know, like, um, they've only had to do it once or twice to send it down. Say, please go for reports. But um, we know things will we know things will leave. People will take advantage of it, but um, out of the hundreds of tools that we have, everything's been donated. And we know that if something crazy happened and somebody wiped us out with a bunch of tools, we could put a, a, a notice out online saying, you know, like, we just have all these tools stolen from us. And we know that it would be met with a community response. We know that people would say, well, you know what, I have one of those. And they needed it, so Okay, this will be the last question. So, I, you, you turned on the Berkeley, Yes. Are they separate spaces closed up versus the building? Because I'm thinking of patrons who have one access to chainsaws and things like that. The Berkeley Tool Left Lending Library opened in 1979 or 1978, and they had a trailer that was behind the library, and they said it got broken into all the time. 
So um, there now, it's, it really is the back door of the library. But is it closed off on the rest of the Yes. Both, both places it was. All right, well, thank you so much. And, and don't go away because we have something for you. Um, this is just, you, you just got the preview of the beginning of conversations that we, we hope to have um, with these folks so that we recognize where we are and we can plug in and have those conversations and see where we go. Um, so I just want to say, these guys volunteered their time to come out today. And so we want to make sure they get a summer reading club, the newest, hottest one, t-shirt. <laughs> so don't leave. <laughs> and um, we're going to get ready now for our, um, our keynote speaker. And we have someone to introduce him. Matt is coming up. So it's, it's really uh, an honor to be able to introduce Corey. Uh, I met Corey because he and a couple of their folks were starting up a makerspace here in Baltimore. Uh, and it's called the Baltimore Foundry, F-O-U-N-D-E-R-Y. Uh, Corey uh, is going to explain a lot about himself, but I, I wanted to sort of project three years in the future. So three years from now, there is going to be a full-time makerspace. The Foundry will be a really successful place. And Corey's going to be there. You'll be able to walk in and, and find him there while he's planning other ventures. He'll also have built a bunch of go-karts with his son by then. And, and I think that in a lot of ways, the, he, he represents an, an example of, um, uh, well, there's actually a slightly unfortunate statement on the Discovery Channel website that sort of labels him as a party boy turned hacker turned sort of geeked out maker. Um, and I guess you'll have to sort of prove that to us if you really are that party boy. Um, but I, I think that you're going to really enjoy uh, getting a chance to meet Corey Fleischer. So let's give him a round of applause and invite him up. So thanks, Matt, for uh, mentioning my, my bio for the TV show that labeled me as the party party boy, as they said. Um, I think it was my, my background in skateboarding, which actually is what kind of got me into being a maker. Um, all right, so um, I'm Corey Fleischer. I'm a senior mechanical engineer at Lockheed Martin. I've worked there for almost 10 years now. Starting out as an intern uh, at Lockheed, I've been able to work on all kinds of really cool projects. I'm a mechanical designer uh, by, by trade, I guess, so I do a lot of design with moving parts. And then as a hobby, I am a maker. Um, so uh, it's a great, you know, it's a great honor to be asked to give the keynote presentation today. So uh, thank you for that opportunity. Um, I'm going to talk about the maker revolution, what I believe is the maker revolution, and you know who makers are, and what people are, are making. Uh, accessibility today, it's an exciting time to be a maker due to the accessibility of of the, the engineering tools and, and the do-it-yourself resources we have. Um, the inventor's business model's changing. There's several new ways to profit from um, inventions or innovations. Innovation by competition. I was talking to a couple people earlier about that. I'm very passionate about that topic, and hopefully that uh, comes across in this presentation. And then uh, I'm going to discuss how the libraries can get involved with this whole you know, maker movement or maker revolution. So the Industrial Revolution, which uh, kind of 
had most of its grounding during the early 1800s. The real summary of the Industrial Revolution is the invention of things like the cotton gin, steam power locomotions, things that would take really hands-on, you know, labor-demanding tasks and convert them to, um, to be able to done with industrial tools. Um, I remember when I went to like a history museum in middle school, we got to actually try to pick seeds out of cotton, and it was a ridiculous task. And to, to then see how the cotton gin is able to do that autonomously, even you know in the 1800s, I and mean, that's it's ri ridiculous that people were had that level of innovation at that time to be able to replace such manual demanding tasks with machines. So today's maker revolution, you'll see it's a big buzzword on the internet now about makers and this maker revolution. Actually, I don't even really like the term maker. It's it's kind of weird to hear that, you know, you know, me and other people being labeled as makers because it's not a new thing. That's not the revolution, isn't that now we have makers. You know, we've always had makers. A lot of us had, you know, parents or grandparents that have woodworking shops in their basement and, you know, have always been building things. Farmers have been innovating things by a necessity for hundreds of years. You know, farmers, if something break, broke on a piece of equipment, they had to get that equipment running. You know, they'd have to figure out ways to make it work. They were, they were makers uh, before we had the, the label of a maker. So I think the real revolution is, is, that, is the tools that makers have, what people are now able to accomplish in their garages or backyards to innovate. We have uh, microcontrollers now uh, the Arduino is pictured here, which is a high, it's a powerful computer the size of a credit card. So you can use the Arduino microcontroller to do all kinds of, you know, advanced robotic systems that wouldn't have been possible 30 years ago. And now you can spend $20 and get this microcontroller off the shelf at Radio Shack. And 3D printing, there's actually three 3D printers downstairs, uh, part of the Maker Fair. And it's amazing that we have these tools at our fingertips. I think there's a new 3D printer hitting the market that's going to cost $200. At that, at that price, I think, you know, I mean, kid, high, high school kids, elementary school kids should have them in their bedrooms. You know, they can modify tools. Instead of hacking apart Legos to create, you know, some, whatever their imagination drives, they should be able to just model in 3D and print it up right there. So what is it that people are making? The real bottom line is people are making whatever they can think of. Uh, here's just a few maker stories that um, really interest me and I found you know, really impressive. So um, on the left, Trevor Blackwell, he built his own balancing scooter. He did this about a year after the Segway hit the market. I remember when I first heard about the Segway, you know, the Segway, the balancing scooter, when a friend of mine told me about this balancing scooter that you just, you know, two wheels side by side, you lean forward. I remember not believing it. I remember thinking, I was about 20 years old at the time. I remember thinking, like, that's not possible. How could you do that? And I had to go and watch YouTube videos to see it working. And actually, like, and then, you know, it really hit me, like, wow, this is an amazing thing. And about a year after that, Trevor Blackwell built his own balancing scooter in his garage. Uh, I, I think I, it's kind of an old story now, but still, I just remember it impressed me. And that really opened up to me what people can do in their garages, you know. You don't need to be this, you know, large company with millions of dollars of research and development funding to build these things. You just need, you know, self-motivation and passion. Here's Taylor Wilson, age 14, built a nuclear fusion reactor in his garage. So he was able to actually generate usable thermal energy 
from nuclear reactions uh, at age 14. Um, and I think, from what I know, he's up there now with what the Iranians are able to do <laughs> as far as nuclear technology goes. So that, it's a, I'm glad he's on our side. <laughs> and then David Neville, this guy, is, this guy's awesome. I don't know if you guys have seen this video, but he built an Oreo separating machine. It's a computer-controlled Rube Goldberg type machine where he could drop in Oreo cookies and it goes through, separates it, and he has like self-cleaning tooling. He uses a hatchet to separate the Oreo cookies and then he has dental floss that goes through and cleans the hatchet for the next one. And uh, at the end result is just the, the, the you know, cookie, outer sandwich parts of the Oreo cookie with no filling. He has a little CNC router that takes the filling out. And it's just awesome to have. I guess he's really motivated. He must really like Oreo cookies without the filling. But, you know, power to that guy. So what do I make? Uh, shown here are just a few of my favorite builds. Uh, in the top left corner is a mini trike that I built. In college, I found this old 8-horsepower, like a lawnmower engine on a shelf that was getting ready to be tossed. And I, it still ran. And I remember thinking, like, there's no way this thing could end up in a dumpster. This is a good running engine. I got to build something. So I don't remember why, but so I built a mini trike and uh, it was awesome. I used to drive it around campus. I actually got pulled over by campus police on it one time. They, uh, they, they gave him a warning though and basically said not to ride it on the roads. Then uh, the electric bar stool. I also made this in college. There's, there's, <laughs> I don't, know, I don't know what's funny about that. <laughs> There's actually a racing league. Uh, it's a Barstool Racing League where they have specs on the size of the, the chassis and all that. So I actually built this to spec. I never got a chance to race it, but it's fully electric. And I got to drive that around in the engineering buildings at UMBC, which is great. And then the Wii Kart uh, in the top right. I have that downstairs if you got a chance to see it. It was a go-kart uh, wirelessly controlled by a Wii remote. Probably the most advanced thing that I built. Uh, you can kind of see a trend here of, you know, building things that I can drive around. I don't know why, but for some reason, it's the most rewarding feeling to be able to build something from scratch, get on it, and then drive it around. You know, it's, to me, it's a great accomplishment. And then in the lower right is a CNC plasma cutter that I built for my garage. And I think I built that only so I could make more elaborate go-kart projects in the future. And that's... One of the, the great things about you know, being a maker in this time and era is the accessibility to these tools. It, five years ago, I really would not have believed that if somebody told me that I was going to build a CNC plasma cutter in my garage. And I don't know if you guys are familiar, but a CNC plasma cutter is basically uh, it's a plasma cutter which can cut through any conductive metals, uh, steel, aluminum, copper, and I mount it to a computer-driven XY table so I can cut up elaborate two-dimensional shapes you know, plug them into the, my software, and I can zip through and cut out any shape or brackets, anything I want out of flat steel. And it's really, I mean, 10, 20 years ago, they were just creating, you know, CNC water jets for uh, industrial manufacturing labs. And, and it's still, you know, CNC cutting tools are, have been, you know, groundbreaking in the past 20, 30 years. And now people can build them in their garages. It's just amazing. Amazing what we what we can do because of you know the internet and then the online resources. So the accessibility of these things, all you need is a CNC. You can buy a CNC kit, which gives you the stepper motors, the drivers, power supply. You get some extruded aluminum, and then Mach 3, which is a CNC uh, control software that's made just for driving these gantry systems. And you can build 
CNC router, CNC plasma, CNC laser cutter people are building. Huge cost benefit there. So torch made, made in the US, really nice plasma cutter, $10,000. Kind of expensive, but when you look at what people pay for cars these days, I mean, this is a great tool and relatively affordable for you know, serious hobbyists to have. Made in China, you can reduce your cost you know, by half to find a uh, made in China gantry system to run your plasma cutter. And I was able to build mine for $2,000. Uh, it took a lot of work. Uh, there was a steep learning curve. I fried several hundred dollars in the electronics. So if I were to do it again, it would be a little bit cheaper. But it, I was able to do it for you know, $2,000. And because I built it myself, if anything breaks on it, if anything goes bad, I'll be able to recognize the problem and fix it myself. So about these online resources. So Instructables is like this online database of like how-to, step-by-step instructions for building crazy projects. Uh, you can pretty much type in anything in there. And any project you can almost think of, if there's any kind of you know, electrical, if there's electrical components out there, so like SparkFun, uh, they sell electronic components for microcontroller projects, you know, controlling big motors, things like that. You can go to SparkFun and there's online tutorials for all their products that shows you how to wire them up, how to get going, so you can use them in your projects. Instructables also goes, goes along with that where you can see you know, some of these spark fun electronics are linked to instructables that show you how to build you know, anything you can think of or anything that, you, if you see something out there, there's most likely an instructables to, so that you can build it yourself. YouTube, if you type in how to, you know, anything in YouTube, good chance that someone did a video showing you how. House projects, uh, just recently I had to change out a faucet in a sink. First thing I did was I just went to YouTube, typed in how to change a faucet, and there were several videos showing step-by-step step for all different kind of faucets out there. It's amazing that you, know, you don't even know until you just type it into YouTube. So let's say you want to build night vision goggles for under $100. Several how-to guides on YouTube and Instructables to do just that, and which may be one of my next projects. If you want to build a jet-powered go-kart, <laughs> you can go on YouTube. There are several... Several people who have built jet, pulse jet-powered go-karts and, and show you know, instructions how to do it yourself using exhaust parts from cars. And that is definitely going to be one of my next projects. So the maker business model has changed, right? You, don't, you no longer, inventors or innovators don't need to sell their soul to raise capital you know, and, and, and get investors to pitch in to launch a product or get one of their ideas to the market. You can go on Kickstarter, you know, throw out you know, sketches, prototypes. If you build a prototype, make a video, you, that's all you need to launch a Kickstarter project where you can get other people to kind of pledge and actually take pre-orders for your, your idea. So the Three Doodler recently was launched February 19th. And by February 22nd, they raised over $2 million by pledges. Basically, people pre-ordering their pens. And the Three Doodler is a pen. It's like a handheld 3D printer, so you can actually draw in 3D and make, you know, wireframe art, things like that. So uh, these guys, I don't know if they were ex expecting to, you know, for their funds to grow that much, but two million dollars, these guys probably they're freaking out or high-fiving each other. I don't know. 
Uh, and actually, this the three doodler pen was actually created in a makerspace up in Boston. YouTube, Google AdSense, you don't need you don't even need to sell your product to make money off it or, or turn a profit. You can make a video, you can invent something the same day, make a video, launch it on YouTube with ads, and you can start making money from your product without you ever going beyond the prototype. Google AdSense, you can make a video, you can launch a website with Google Ads and do some step-by-step -step instructions so other people can see it, or even just have people visit your website, you know, and, and click on sponsored links, and you could turn a profit from a product without ever making more than a prototype. It's showing off. This is another awesome thing about the internet. So David Neville and his Oreo separator machine, uh, he made a really awesome YouTube video. It had music to it. It was really elaborate. Showed like the step-by-steps of all the little mechanisms that went on. He got 4.2 million YouTube hits on his video, which is amazing to think that he, he built one system and made a video and was able to get 4.2 million people to check it out. And that's a great thing for a maker. You know, that's why we have maker fairs. It's great. And people have been doing it forever. There's all kinds of, you know, these cabin fever get-togethers where people build their own sterling engines and go show them off to other enthusiasts. Now you can do it, you know, with a click of a button the same day you create something. So my Wii card, I posted that on YouTube, and today it has 50,000 hits, which looks pretty weak next to David Neville's YouTube <laughs> results. But it's still awesome. You know, I, I built this, and to step back, I think 50,000 people have checked out my, my go-kart. It, it, it's great. It's a huge accomplishment. You, you know, I, never, I didn't build that to ever take it to market. I built it just because it was fun, and I knew it would be you know, fun to drive around and let my friends drive around. So to, to have, know that 50,000 people checked it out is, is just a great feeling. So Maker Marvels. There's like three three periods in my life where I really just accomplished some great engineering feats. Uh, the first one, in high school, I was part of a tech magnet program where uh, our, my class built a single passenger electric vehicle. This isn't actually the vehicle we built. Uh, it's another Electrothon vehicle from the same school. Uh, I couldn't find any pictures of ours. But uh, we built this Electrothon racer to compete against other schools in the same tech magnet programs from all over. So we, we worked extremely hard all semester to finish this vehicle and show up to the competition and race it around to see whose car could get the most miles out of a single charge of batteries. Then in college, I got sucked into the Mini Baja team pretty hard. I spent uh, at least four years highly dedicated to the Mini Baja. Mini Baja, is, it's a single passenger, it's a collegiate design competition where Engineering schools uh, get teams to build a single passenger off-road go-kart, shown here, and then they compete it uh, internationally. So there's multiple races every year. Schools from all over get together. There's about 150 to 200 cars in the competition. They race in a big motocross endurance event, and, and it's great. And what I've learned on these two projects was unbelievable. Um, during the Electrothon one, that's when I really realized that I wanted to be a mechanical engineer. I didn't even know what a mechanical engineer was until then. Um, but I was so dedicated to the, the, the project, and I just wanted to finish the car and have it there. Um, my teacher recognized all the hours I was putting in, and he kind of pulled me aside and, and you know, asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and I really didn't have an answer. 
And he, was, and he pretty much said, you know, well, you should look into mechanical engineering. And when he explained it to me, I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And for the Electrothon in high school, there were days when you know, school would be closed for holidays, and we would, at, we would beg our teachers to come let us into the shop so that we could come and continue working on the car. And the big brain theory. This is uh, my most recent uh, I guess, stage of my engineering life. I was um, selected to be one of 10 contestants on the Discovery Channel's Big Brain Theory. It was a reality TV show, like a competition series. It's actually airing right now uh, on Wednesdays. I guess I can plug it, right? Wednesdays, <laughs> Wednesdays at 7 p.m. You can go and, uh, and check it out. It's, it's just like Top Chef or Top Shot, you know, one of those competition series where we had to get together as 10 of us. We were competing for a $50,000 grand prize. Every challenge, they'd, they'd throw us some crazy objective, you know, something almost impossible. They'd give us a few thousand dollars in a few days, and we'd have to split into teams of five and create this. Um, so actually, I'll go back. Another thing that I really want to show, um, the, the, the kind of shared point between these, these stages are the competition here. All these major accomplishments, you know, as an engineer, were motivated by competition. You know, I wasn't getting paid for any of these. I mean, I was competing for money on the big brain. But I wasn't getting paid like what you would get for a career, you know, full-time employment. But still, I, I, I created more. I pushed myself way harder than as if it was just a full-time job. On the big brain theory, so in the upper left here, one of the challenges, we had to build a robot that could compete in three decathlon events. We had to build a robot that could drive really fast, launch a javelin, and jump perform a standing long jump. And we had four days to do this and $10,000. And it, it's unbelievable. Thing. I mean, there's only a handful of jumping robots that have ever been created. And most of them are created by you know, large companies with huge engineering teams, systems integrators, project managers, you know, million dollar budgets. And we were able to accomplish it. We actually built a robot that jumped, and we beat the human record for a standing long jump with a robot that we built in a few days. Then uh, on the right here, another challenge. We had a 30-pound box of explosives in a truck. They uh, created a head-on-head -head collision between two vehicles, and we had to come up with a way to prevent the explosives from detonating. And again, I mean, large-scale problems. We had three days and $5,000 to do that. In the lower uh, illustration here, there's uh, a giant, uh, it's a giant like helicopter system. We had a challenge, we were in a bunker and they launched a projectile from a, at us from hundreds of yards away. And we had to create a defense system that would take down the incoming projectile before it landed, before it impacted our bunker and just and filled us with slime. It was, yeah, the projectiles were filled with slime. So it was in our best interest to take it down before it hit our bunker. But again, I mean, it's, it's the innovation by competition. We were able to build these things and you know, really push ourselves crazy long work days under you know, a lot of stress purely by the competition. I mean, any, at any point, we could have just sat back and be like, ah, you know, I'm going to sit this one out. But nobody did. We worked 16-hour days in the shop. Afterwards, we were going back to the house and just doing you know, round-the-clock analysis, calculations, modeling, things like that. So innovation by competition. My college project, the Mini Baja, it was completely extracurricular. So for several years, I, I sacrificed my GPA 
in order to get this car to competition, which probably was hindsight probably wasn't the best choice. But to have that competition, to, to know that you're going to be going up against, you know, teams from Virginia Tech and, you know, oh, I can't. There's teams from South Korea and Brazil coming, I mean, huge schools. And here I am, UMBC, relatively small and relatively unknown in the, you know, in the, in the engineering world. And, uh, and we wanted to compete with all those other schools. They had much more money than us. So we had to get smart. And here we built a inertia wheel dynamometer to tune our engines and transmission. And we had to learn, none of us knew how to do these things, so we go online, we figured out how to tune an engine. Okay, you need a dynamometer, how can we build one? So we got a flywheel from a Mack truck, we loaded it in this cage, and we did a complete data acquisitioning system to record RPM torque. And we taught ourselves you know, instrumentation through LabVIEW to get this done. And here's a horsepower versus RPM curve that we were able to get from a, a homemade dyno. That we use, and this dyno is still being used by UMBC to tune their, their engines and transmission for the Mini Baja team. STEM competitions, they're already, so I'm not the only one, I mean, you know, it's a common thing, you know, for, to use competition to motivate people. And they're already doing it. The first Lego League is a robotics competition for elementary and middle schoolers, age 9 to 14. These kids get together and compete. So every year, objectives are released, and these Lego League groups get together, and they have to build Legos that can go down, pick up obstacles in predetermined locations using these Lego kits. And I was, I was uh, lucky enough to judge, or I was one of the judges in one of these competitions a few years ago, and it was amazing to see these kids show up and see them checking out other, you know, other team solutions. And you could see the gears turning. They're already, you know, saying, oh, I wish I did that, or oh, that, you know, and a lot of them are like, oh, that's not gonna work, ours is better. But it's just great to see that dedication. And you can see all the team dynamics. You can see the little program managers and the little lead designers. <laughs> it's, it's just awesome to, to see. I mean, and it, kids are getting hooked at that. And I, I have a six-year-old son. And pretty soon, he loves playing with Legos, and he loves coming up with new things, but pretty soon he's going to outgrow you know, the three bins of Legos and our living room space, and I can't wait to get him involved in the first Lego League. Uh, I'm glad that, that he'll have the opportunity to do that. I didn't have that at age nine, uh, but he will. Had I had this, I would have gotten sucked into engineering competitions way earlier, and I would have sacrificed my GPA in high school and middle school, too. <laughs> And then the first robotics league, this is crazy. Again, I didn't have the opportunity to do this. They didn't do this when I was in high school, or I definitely would have been involved. But uh, just like the Lego League, once a year, the objectives for the competition are released, and these kids have to build these robots that can do things. You know, One year, like shown here, they had to build robots that could launch basketballs into basketball hoops. And these, it's amazing what these kids can do. They're learning image recognition through software. They're building omnidirectional drive systems so these robots can you know, change directions instantaneously. It's just absolutely amazing what you know, these STEM competitions are, are doing to motivate kids to really push themselves from early ages and, be, and learn you know, really advanced engineering skills and principles firsthand. They, these kids have, are, haven't gone to the college courses. They don't know anything about statics and dynamics and you know, mechanics of materials. But they're learning. They're building robot parts that are going to fail, you know, and they're going to learn how stress is, how to build. They're going to get that gut instinct for how to build things that work before they even get you know, the, the basic fundamental education. And library involvement. 
libraries already have you know books and computers and they're already the best thing about libraries is they're already they're everywhere every community has libraries and I think that you know it's almost a no-brainer for libraries to get involved. Just like the one here, just hosting the Maker Fair, you know, Innovation Expo here, it's it's great how libraries can do that sorts of thing. They have the locations to do it for all communities. They could easily get involved to host you know local meetups. You know, instead of doing annual competitions with the first robotics leagues, local libraries could have smaller competitions, smaller get-togethers to give kids. You know, like my son, just a platformer stage to show off what they've built. So, I mean, my son loves building things and then showing it to me. But if I could take him so he could show it off to other kids and other makers, it would be just a great opportunity to, to get kids involved in making early on. And also, so yeah, with meetups and libraries could host classes. Kids, kids don't need much. I don't. I think to to really push themselves and to pick up new skills. All they need is the opportunity. They just need the tools. They they already have the time. They just need the, the tools and the mentoring and some quick you know once over. This is how you use this tool. Here's the tool. Go. And I mean kids are so creative. I think you lose that as you get older. Um, but the creativity of kids really is it's self-driven. All you need to, all we need to do is and I mean, Matt Matt this is Matt's life so he can tell you more. But you give the kids the tools, and and they're going to learn to use it, and they're going to get they're going to get better at using tools than anyone who teaches them really quickly. My son already trumps me with Lego thing. I mean, I showed him how to do some Legos, and now his mind just runs. Um, so yeah, make makeathons. You could have you know all day events where kids you get kids together, give them you know Legos, building blocks, other manufacturing tools, and they can just go crazy learning. Um, so yeah, I think it's the maker community definitely needs libraries to be involved, and I, I think it's a win-win. There's definitely a lot of synergy there. Another thing with with hosting these meetups is makers love meeting other makers. So with the, the foundry, the maker space that I'm co-founding, we're only in the building phase. So we're still just hosting build days where people are showing up to help us build workbenches and shelves and things like that. And on a good build day, if we have 12 guys there, or, you know, or 12 guys and girls there that build, it's crazy to sit back and watch them talk to each other about different projects that they have. Every every build day, you see makers exchanging emails and phone numbers because somebody talks about a new project that they're going to start doing. Someone else will raise their hand saying, oh, I did something real similar to that two years ago. Make sure you do this, this, and this. And you can just, just see the networking. You just step back. I mean, you just... Get makers together, and it's a win-win for everybody. So the bottom line is, it is it's an exciting time to be a maker. You know, the, the resources that we have, the tooling, the fact that you know we have microcontrollers that are so powerful and so small, and you know we have online libraries that show you how to program these microcontrollers. I mean, think all technologies are pretty much approachable to anybody that wants to do them. Just recently, uh, me and some guys at our makerspace, we built a foundry, which coincidentally the name is the foundry. So we figured we should build a foundry. We wanted to learn how to melt aluminum and cast it. So we went online, and all the, tech, all, all the information was there. So we built a foundry to melt aluminum. And it's crazy to think that anybody can melt aluminum and do their own sand casting in their garage if they if they want to. I mean for a hundred bucks in sand and and concrete you can build anything you want to melt 
melt aluminum or you know any steels even. Engineering is getting recognition. I saw some uh, some some pins downstairs that said like it's cool to be smart. You see those? It really is. Engineering. I'm not just saying that because I'm an engineer, but it is getting recognition as uh, as just something cool to do, something interesting. With the TV show, The Big Brain Theory, the only reason that Discovery Channel is able to launch such a an expensive show, and it was the most expensive show that Discovery Channel ever put together. And they did that because they knew that there was going to be an interest in it because of what you know interest other people are showing in related engineering shows, like Mythbusters and other things. Um, so and viral YouTube videos. Yeah, you can just see by David Neville's thing. You know, 4.2 million people have checked. I mean, it, it's good if a TV show gets a gets a million viewers. That's a really successful TV show. He did it himself. He got four million viewers. So library support is needed. We need, there's already libraries in every community. We might as well take advantage of that and provide, you know, the meetups and, you know, and resource and um, I guess mentoring that people need to to learn and grow as makers. Um, local competitions again, innovation by competition. I think it's a powerful tool. They say, you know, what uh, necessity is the mother of invention. But you don't, I don't think you need that necessity to push people to innovate and invent. Really, you know, there's other, other ways, and innovation by competition is a powerful tool to really push kids you know, to, to get the most out of them and get them, get them dedicated. So that's all. So thank you for the opportunity. <laughs>